Welcome to Fundraising Stories with Female Founders. I'm Julia Elliott-Brown, the founder and CEO of Enter the Arena. I'm a serial entrepreneur and an expert in raising investment and business growth. Our mission at Enter the Arena is to empower female founders to fly through pre-raise and investment and onto the exponential growth of their business with investment expertise and business coaching. Here we share the stories of inspirational female founders who've raised investment to inspire you to do the same. You'll hear their honest accounts of what it was really like to secure funding, the highs, the lows and the challenges they experienced on the journey. And along the way, we'll discuss top tips for how you can be successful too. Today I'm speaking with Jenny Costa, the CEO and founder of Ruby's in the Rubble. Now, over the last eight years, Jenny's been taking on the fight against food waste with her conscious condiments business. She does this by taking the fruit and vegetables that would, would have been thrown away by the industry and transforming it into delicious, award-winning chutneys, relishes and ketchups. So this is a business firmly built not only on sustainability, but also on fantastic taste. And um, over the years, the brand has built a loyal and authentic fan base of retailers, restaurants, food lovers, providing, proving that you can be commercial and conscious, which is fantastic. So the big news is that Jenny recently raised over £2 million in investment through crowdfunding, which is unbelievable. And um, this came through the crowd, but also through institutional investors. So we're going to be finding out all about that today. But what's interesting about this round is that it overfunded so significantly that Jenny had to turn lots and lots of investors away, which is an incredible position to be in. So let's find out more about how Jenny managed to raise all her funding rounds and also discover her top tips and learnings from the whole experience. So welcome, Jenny. Thank you. So it's great to have you here. And I'm, I'm, let's go back to the beginning, really. I'd love to find out more about how the, the idea for Rubies in the Rubble came about. Do tell me. Um, yes, Rubies in the Rubble in 2012. It was definitely a passion project. I uh, was working in a hedge fund at the time and I just started researching food waste in 2010 and I became so passionate about, um, about the issue around it. I suppose I just didn't realise that we were wasting a third of what we produce globally and that it counts for 10% of our greenhouse gases in the UK and um, on doubling food and 50 to feed the expected billion on the planet, um, which didn't feel like it made sense whilst we were wasting a third of what we produce and it just sustainably did not stack up. It's a fun brand that championed... Um, great tasting produce and raised awareness of the need to treat food like a precious resource, but at the same time um, saved food waste and, and raised awareness around the issue. And that was really the start of Ruby's. I've been brought up on a, a small sustainable farm in Scotland. So right at the very core of all my beliefs was this want for sustainable food supply. Um, and it, uh, from that, I suppose, was the, the love of, of food and Ruby's in the Rubble was the, the, sort of the answer to that. So, what, so what, tell me why there is so much waste. Where, does, where is the wastage happening? Food waste is quite a complicated issue because it happens throughout the whole food supply chain. So um, we get losses from the farm to the factory to the supermarket and then in your own homes and restaurants. Uh, it, and it, it, it is an interesting one because it's a hard one to tackle as well. Well, I think from our point of view, we feel like um, a lot of food is avoidable. Uh, food waste is avoidable 
people um, and it's about changing attitudes so um, if you think back to your grandparents generation you sort of you would never waste food in your own fridge and you'd always be using your leftovers and I think as well we had a, a culture of knowing how to cook a little bit more as well so if you had a chicken you would make sure you made three meals out of this and you, you create different recipes around that um, and I, I suppose it's sort of that's part of it is the attitudes and the learning and the education side of it from the consumer side. But then there's also a lot of standards as well from the on the farm level, which is where we deal with um, food waste and we take direct from the farm. They get a lot of that's reduced color um, and, and that might just be purely sort of supermarket standards. Um, so we're almost needing to pick fruit and veg way before it's it's ever ripe um to make sure that it has that shelf life to last the journey mm. so there's there's various different reasons for it um I, th I think i suppose from from our side i think that we have become so far removed from our food supply chain um and we see food as a cheap commodity and then changing the attitudes of how we can treat food and treat it like a precious resource because if you if you looked at pasta that's a very cheap thing that a lot of times when you cook pasta you throw away half of it at the end or you cook too much um whereas actually the carbon footprint of uh, getting pasta to your plate and growing wheat turning it into pasta packaging it up shipping it putting it into your supermarket getting it home cooking it and then you throw away a lot of it um it's a hard one to communicate to people of the value of, of why food waste matters um, compared to say a plastic bag where you can see how ugly it is when it gets left and it doesn't decompose, which food waste can decompose as long as it's not sent to landfill um, and it's compostable, but yet the carbon footprint of growing it and getting there at the first, uh, getting there in the first place and then we throw it is, is the main problem. It's shocking, isn't it? It makes me feel terrible. <laughs> <laughs> it's a great idea. So, Interesting that it came from kind of almost like a desk piece, you know, desk-based research that you saw this issue. So how did you then, so, and the, the issue seems so obvious and your vision seems so obvious. So then mm -hmm. did you literally think, right, what can I do? How can I, did you make chutneys in your kitchen or how did it actually kick off? Yeah, well, um, so the, the idea for actually being in condiments was, it was one of the very first nights that I started researching food waste and I'd heard about these wholesale fruit and veg markets and uh, that ran from midnight till around 6am across London and it was a way of getting fresh fruit and veg into stores across the country for the next day. And I set my alarm at 4am, decided to cycle to one of them and seeing fruit and veg with your own eyes, I sort of fell in love with this market. First of all, because it was bustling, 200 traders, forklifted trucks going everywhere. Uh, um, and coming from the financial world where you felt like you were in a competitive market, suddenly seeing everyone seemed to be selling potatoes and everyone was selling tomatoes and it was so competitive. Um, and so it was sort of a really buzzing environment. But then at the same time, 50 meters away was a product that was unsold and you could see it going to the tip. And when I started looking at a lot of it, a lot of it seemed perfectly good. Um, and it might not have a shelf life to last 10, 15 days to get to a shop and then sit on a shelf until someone wants to buy it. But um, I thought it, at the moment it's perfectly good. Um, and I still remember, I remember seeing a pallet of Monge 2 beams, which said from Kenya on the front and I opened them up and they seemed absolutely perfect. And that was the first thing that I packed in my bag and I thought, I've got to, 
take these home and do something with them. And as I was cycling back um, home and I was thinking, God, there's just so much value in this and it's perfectly good. It's like a diamond in the dust. And then it was a ruby in the rubble came from that. Mm. Um, and my, my mother on the farm, she's an artist and a really keen gardener. And she had all of our childhood, whenever she had abundance in any of her crops, turned them into cordials, jams, chutneys, anything, any natural way of preserving something. Um, so I've been brought up with always having something on the stove bubbling away and then we would always really enjoy it and get excited by her raspberry jam in winter or um, her rhubarb chutney and uh, I think from that I just thought this is the perfect way of preserving I can add value to it and add shelf life and I'm going to create a fun condiments brand that um, tastes better than anything else it's packed with fresh fruit and veg but it also saves fruit and veg that would otherwise be wasted and spreads the word about this need to celebrate and cherish food again brilliant i love it it's fantastic so at the beginning yeah did you need a lot of capital to get things off the ground or could you self-fund it in those early days well i think i think everyone starts a business in very different ways and i was very unclear what i was starting i was so passionate about the cause um i think as well that everyone's personalities are very different so right from the off start um rather than writing a business plan, I just thought I'm 25 years old. I'm excited by this. I'm not excited by my current job. And I handed my notice and thought, I'm going to give this a shot. And I still remember my boss at the time, um, leaving a hedge fund and saying, you're going to make chutney. Everyone was sort of laughing quite a bit, but he was amazing. He just said, give it your best for two years and don't get distracted. Don't do it half-heartedly. Um, but set yourself that timeline and if it doesn't work you can turn around having learned so much about starting a business or trialing different things different new skill sets um but you'll turn around and you'll be happy to close that door because you know that it didn't work for x y and z but it's not because you didn't try hard enough um, and i thought that was the best piece of advice um when i went and, and left work um so i did leave very quickly i had no business plan um i had a passion for what i was wanting to do i tried selling it as a couple of farmers markets and got a buzz out of what I was doing and, and loved so having a product that other people wanted um, and you knew exactly what was in it um, and then um, rather than raising investment because I feel like raising investment is, is you're taking on a huge responsibility um, you're taking on some, somebody else has put their money in you and believes in your idea and I wasn't ready to take on that I didn't really know where I was trying to go um, we looked into past sources for a while soups we did smoothies for the Olympics um, we traded in all sorts of different things and I really wanted to nail exactly what that was and um, we did get a couple of grants at the beginning which was really helpful um, I think I was very fortunate as well having left a hedge fund um, I had a bit of a bonus that I knew I, I sort of had a uh, about a nine month window where I, I moved out of my old flat with my friend and moved into a shoebox in East London and sort of had this sort of started really saving money but knew that I could survive for nine months. Um, I got a part time job from summertime and just sort of we were selling at Borough Market and then to a couple of delis and trying to understand how this whole thing worked. I think supply chain from our side, every business has one part of it that's incredibly tricky and for us it was understanding the supply chain and understanding how we could get um, a continuous amount of supply and a reliable supply of surplus and where that surplus was, like, was it occurring in the markets or was it occurring on farm level? 
And as we grew, we realized that it was the, sort of the big farms that had contracts with supermarkets, which where we wanted to target. Um, but we needed to get to a big enough scale that we would be interesting for the farmers to work with us because they weren't prepared to pack up a couple of boxes when they had 30 tons of fruit and veg being discarded and we, were, we could only manage to take half a ton. Um, so we eventually scaled by getting into more and more stores. Getting, uh, we had some great restaurant listings as well. Um, and then two years later, um, we, we, we moved into a proper kitchen. So I sort of struggled along with a part-time job, um, sort of doing everything off of a shoestring. We did everything in-house, our website, our label designs, doing everything as cheap as we possibly could for the first two years. And then when we realized there's a bit of a, we, we know where we're going here, we raised a small amount of investment in 2015, um, and then outsourced production, redid our branding and started working with a sort of larger with Ocado, Waitrose and some larger players. So that, so that first bit of investment, was that from professional investors or was it kind of a friends and family round? It was, a, it was from um, a VC called Mustard Seed Impact. Um, so it's two guys that left, I suppose, the, the corporate invest in, investment world feeling like, the future was to have purpose-driven businesses and they set up their own fund. Um, and we were, I think, one, sort of one of the first, probably first 10 businesses they invested in. Uh, and they've been amazing support. They've supported us ever since. Um, and I think, I think sometimes I look back on the way that I grew Rubies and there's definitely ways that you could have done it quicker if you'd had an injection of cash right from the beginning. If I potentially had... Uh, I, we've just shifted our product range to be much more mainstream condiments. But if I hadn't started with chutneys and I'd been sort of much more business savvy about where what I was wanting to do, but it took me almost the first two years to really understand I want to run a business and I want this to be, um, I, I want this to get nationwide um, and I want to really make an impact. I have to have products that sell um, weekly in everyone's shopping baskets. So it was, yeah, it just took me that time to do that. But um, so there's huge value. I mean, there's huge value in that journey, isn't there? That journey that you went on is what made you actually so investable at the point where you did go out for funding. Yeah, and I think I think amazingly, for, I mean, having learnt, having been in the kitchen for two years as well, spoken to so many different farmers, figured out our supply chain. Um, and also we were very fortunate that food waste was just starting, food waste was just starting to become a top time. Um, so it was, it was 2010, it was a very hippie notion. Mm-hmm. Um, in 2014, we, Tesco suddenly released their food waste figures and there was a lot more press and uh, it was hitting the news line and uh, uh, headlines. And as the only brand doing anything in food waste, we got a lot of press from that. So we were riding a bit of a wave, which was a fantastic thing to be doing as a very small business. Um, So at the point where we started looking for investment, we had a lot of press having been on BBC and Sky and CNN and Bloomberg and Times. And for the size of our company, we'd we'd had a lot of exposure. Mm. Um, And so people could see that there was an interest or a demand for what we were trying to do. It was now about getting some cash behind us, putting some resource behind. And actually as well, looking at our products that we sold because we were starting to realise that the people that loved our brand didn't necessarily buy chutneys. And that was where the pivot came from, from let's start creating products that people that are loving what we do um, are buying. So did that, with that first round, I mean, you know, many people talk about that first round being the hardest. 
did you find it easy doing that first round given the, the kind of momentum you had at the point where you were getting that, that money in? Um, I don't think, I mean, I think fundraising is always a journey and I, I, don't, I don't know if anyone ever finds it easy, but it was, um, we, I did a couple of pitches um, and we were very fortunate that in the audience, of, I think the third pitch that I did um, was one of the Mustard Seed members and immediately they just said, yeah, we're, we're keen. And we were also raising a very small amount. We raised 120K just to start us off. Um, and we were very fortunate that they loved the direction that we were going in and really felt the value. Um, so I think, I think we were just at a fortunate point. I think this, this last round, round that we've done um, was a very similar story as well, that it, it was very, actually, it was harder. It was a very hard start. Um, and then once we got a bit of momentum, it, it sort of, the floodgates opened. So let's talk about this last round then. So you did your, your initial round with Mustard Seed uh, back in 2015, was it? Yes. And, yeah. and then um, in 2019, decided to raise again through crowdfunding. So why crowdfunding this time? Um, so I suppose the, the, the whole story was in 2018, we were looking to raise money. We wanted to raise 1.2 million. Um, we'd gone out, spoke to quite a lot of different people um, and they kept on just saying, I love your idea, but you're too small. You haven't proven yourself. I'm not going to invest um, yet. Um, prove yourself and then come back, which is often the story for, I think, small brands because it is very risky uh, investing in small companies. Um, but it's off from the brand's point of view, you're saying, well, I'm never going to get there unless I have the resources to, to support me. Um, so we had a very tricky 2018 of just trying to get interest. Um, and then in, in February 2019, so earlier this year, I, um, I suddenly panicked. I was like, we're running out of cash. We're going to be, we could be under by summertime. Um, we'd, we'd also grown the team because within 2018, there was quite a few investors that were committed and then fell through. Um, so we'd, we'd grown the team to support growth. We'd created this new catch-up, working with a, a very big manufacturer. Um, we created a Mayo as well. So we had all of our products ready to go. Um, and, and also salaries were going out the door every month. And I, suddenly, I was realizing that we really need the cash quickly. And that was the first time where we thought we've got to turn to crowdfunding because everything else, when we have conversations with people, it can sometimes take five months to close, whereas a crowdfund can be quite quick. Um, so it was a very quick decision in the business. Um, we put a video together. We, we sort of decided that we were going to do it. We decided we were going to go live and two weeks later um, and knew that we had to put a bit pitch together, which we had most of it because we'd been pitching already. Um, created a little video and very fortunately, Lucy, who works at Ruby's, um, her friends who um, do a lot of small video and film so that they'll take up a, a Sunday for us. Uh, so when you have a day, we put a really tight script together, filmed everything in our office um, within sort of three quarters of a day. And then they had another day of editing. We put some free music behind it and, and away we went. So the video for us was sort of a way of showing a bit of personality about the brand and getting our story out. Um, and then we went live. Um, I think with crowdfunding as well, there's often a myth that people say like oh we we hit our funding level within the first three days and every brand i've spoken to um says that they had to sort of sign up or line up at least i mean some some of them are lining up almost 90 percent, but at least 
um, 60% of that round. So we lined up around 60%. Um, we were aiming for 300 and within about 10 days we hit um, 500k. So it was, it was a fantastic to think, ah, oh, great, there's suddenly a bit of momentum. Um, and at the same time, I think just having that video, we started reaching out to people again um, that were from VCs to, to sort of professional investors. Um, and they suddenly got, got interested and got excited and could see some momentum. And a, a video as well just shows the personality of a brand. Suddenly you're not just another chutney or a ketchup brand. Mm. Um, and the video just really helped push that mm. as well. I had real hunger in, in me. So I was suddenly pitching in a very different way. Um, <laughs> so I was being yeah, a lot more. It. I mean, I think there's a couple of po- interesting points there. There's something about crowdfunding mm. that really focuses you on the timing because it's it, it can be very difficult can't it when you're just having conversations with institutions or, or high net worth individuals to, to try and get that sense of urgency mm. and, and um, corral people into making the commitment it's very easy for people just to kick it into the long grass and as you say say oh well you're too small come back when there's traction because there's just no yeah. there's no urgency whereas once you once you do the crowdfunding that's it you're in you're on you know and it has to happen and they're either in or they're out there's no messing yeah. about it de- definitely um and i think as well I, I think for the first time and this is probably a really big learning for me but it was the first time that i started practicing pitches and practicing meetings and seeing them that i was selling and representing the business and before I was always a little bit tentative or nervous. Um, I felt very confident in what we were doing, but instead of, we're going to, our aim is to have 3% of the ketchup market within the UK ketchup market within the next three years. The ketchup market is 7 million, uh, 700 million in the UK. I would, I used to sort of tentatively be like, well, we're going to try and have this and we're going to try and do that. And we hope to do that. And, and um, I think just with the urgency of feeling like we are a brand that's going to do something and, um, and we are going to get investment. So changing that mindset, I was going into meetings with a lot more um, power and oomph behind me. Um, and that, and I mean, that, mi- that mindset switch is so critical. What's, what's interesting yeah. about that is sometimes you see entrepreneurs where they, they can see the, the, the sort of, um, they can see the end coming because they can see the cash running out, that sense of urgency. Sometimes people go into a kind of rabbit in a headlight panic at that point. Yeah. There it, their fear seeps out of every pore and actually doesn't do them any favors. But in your case, um, you actually took that kind of fear and turned the energy into something very, very positive, didn't you? Yeah, I I think I I got um, the momentum. I I think your passion for your doing suddenly comes out Mm. um, and you suddenly realize this, I could lose this and and I need some, I I need support. And also I know I've got a great idea and I've got a great team behind us. We've just rebranded everything like that. You're sort of, you're very strong on what you're trying to do. Um, So I think, yeah, that side came out. And then also as we started getting more and more interest, um, it became very attractive to people because it it was harder to get in. So we were turning people away and and, um, yeah, it it ended up going really well in our favor. Yeah. I mean, that's, you know, we talked about the sense of urgency, but there's also the, the FOMO that goes on with crafting the fear of missing out. Isn't it incredible once people see that you have gone into overfunding, how that kind of really motivates people to actually want in 
it's odd. I mean, I think that once we were, in, once we were fully funded and the overfunding started, the rate of people joining you completely you know, plummeted and sort of went crazy. Um, but I think also on, on Cedars and a lot of, of the crowdfunding platforms, um, you get ranked up the page depending on how fast you're growing and if you're overfunding. So sometimes it's just the fact that you're right at the top of the page the whole time as well. So it, it, there was, there was, there was a quite a lot of um, things that we learned about it. Um, it's an art and a, it's an art and a science. There's a lot of psychology involved in it, actually. <laughs> it's really extraordinary. So you mentioned the video, which I, I mean, I thought your video was fantastic, and um, it's great to understand a little bit more about how you made it and how quickly you made it. Um, can you give us an indication of what money you spent on on doing that? Because I think a lot of people see these amazing videos and they think, "Oh my God, I can't afford to do that. That's going to cost me thousands and thousands." You know, what what kind of budget were you looking at? Um, so I think we. I think it was it, so it was around two fifty for a day of filming. Um, it felt like you know for a small business it was still an investment, um, but we just certainly weren't going out and creating the next Disney or anything. It was it was it was um, all in our office, just props that we made in in house by hand, um, and then just trying to be. I, I think for me the most important thing was having the tight script. Mm. Um, and rehearsing and rehearsing the script so that it flows well and you're mm. I think words are so powerful um, so making sure that you're using the right words that really convey what you're getting across yeah, and then it meant, it meant as well the first. filming yeah the script yeah and then the filming becomes very quick and easy as well because you're flowing through it and it's punchy and it keeps on moving mm. And um, I mean, something that's, that's worth noting, uh, and I'm sure you went through this process, is making sure that the script has been signed off by the platform before you produce the video, because I've seen entrepreneurs do that, make that mistake before, you know, spend a lot of money and time producing a video, then sending it through to get the due diligence done and, and then realising that they've, that it's not, you know, it's not going to pass the bar. Yeah, no. Um... Slow you down. Yeah, I, uh, there was a lot of signing off of making sure you had pr proof of everything you were stating and some things that you didn't even realise you were stating but you were implying and making sure that that was all covered as well. Yeah, so unbelievable that you went out with a target of 300 and you ended up raising 2 million. So let's, let's deconstruct that a little bit. So can you, have you got a sense or can you share with us the split of um, where those investors came from, you know, how many were, were big investors, how many were small, how many were your customers, how many were institutional investors, you know, mm. what's, your, what's your take on it? So with Cedars, we ended up finishing the round around uh, 500k. Um, so that was all smaller investors, probably between from as little as 10 pounds to 2000. Um, and then uh, we had a couple of others. The sort of next ticket size up was probably 25,000 and there was probably a handful of maybe five to 10 of those. Um, and then from there, we got sort of one or two really bigger tickets um, and actually people that we were really excited to have on board because they brought a lot more than just um, just some cash to the business. So they brought a lot of expertise. Some of them are sitting on as observers to our board. Um, and it was that that sort of their connections and their network and the expertise that they could bring that was really powerful um, for the business. And we love that we've got the split because we've got some of our uh, retail buyers invested in rubies or we've got some chefs that love us um, invested that we're already supplying and feeling like they're backing us. It was a huge um, 
uh, it's a real pat on the back of feeling like they believed in the company enough to want to put their own cash in as well as just buying the product. Um, so I, I, we love the crowdfunding. I think it was an amazing opportunity to have people that had followed us over the years. And we had some amazing messages from people saying, I remember when you were in Borough Market and mm. um, now I'm so excited to be able to keep on supporting you. I'm feeling like you've got an army of people that have got your back um, and that are customers across the country and that we can reach out to in times when we're wanting to question something or wonder how what direction we should go into we're looking at sustainable plastics or glass keeping in glass and all those kind of questions it's fantastic to have that base um, but at the same time we've also got um we've got the one or two uh, larger investors as well so it was a, a sort of nice split and, and the platform that we did in i think they they organize and um manage their investors very well um so on our share table it it sort of comes up as one one investor, uh, which also helps as well. Yeah, absolutely. That that nominee structure is it just um, it yeah. means you end up with a very 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 messy cap table. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I love it that you have all these key stakeholders. And I think people often think, oh, I need to have all my customers, and and it's not just but it's not just customers, is it? It's suppliers, it's partners, it's all these people who have a vested interest in your business. Bringing them on board is amazing. Yeah. Yeah. And do, do you do you have a sense for how many of the investors were people that you were brought in yourself and were already talking to versus people who came in blind? We had uh, it was hard to say. I mean, we had some amazing people getting in touch via LinkedIn, having seen our video or seen the platform, and with with some surprisingly good sized tickets as well. So it was it was a real mixture. Um, I think uh, I think it was probably. I mean, because we'd already. Uh, reached out to our own platform and secured around 60%. Um, that was the that was probably the basis of, uh, of everyone that came through Cedars. Um, it was around 60% that was from us, and then the rest was um, was from the platform. Uh, but I think once you've got the 60% and you've got a bit of momentum as well, other people are, are keen and excited to join. Mm, fantastic. So, and you had a really strong valuation, actually, Jenny. So it was 4.8 million oh, no. free money, I think, wasn't it? Did you, you know, how did the market receive that? Did you get any pushback from them um, or was that, was that fairly straightforward? We were really fortunate that because we had a VC committing already um, a chunk of cash um, before we went live on Cedars, uh, the, the valuation was already set. Um, and because it was set by an institution, people uh, understood it and believed it. And even though our sales were very small, having... I suppose our exposure as a brand and what we were doing as a brand and our link with this new manufacturer and moving into ketchup and mainstream products was the exciting thing. I suppose people were investing in the future growth rather than um, our sales or turnover to date. But it was this sort of unique position that we were in that we had created a supply chain. We were the first movers in the food waste movement um, and also had this amazing press and following behind us that people could see the momentum and the demand um, and having switched from a product that no one really buys of chutneys to, to mainstream ketchups and mayos, there was this excitement of we can see where this brand's going and, and we're excited to join it. Yeah. So that, so that validation from a professional investor or an institutional yeah. investor is, is really hugely helpful, isn't it? In a yeah. Hugely helpful. Yeah. So then let's, let's talk about this bit about you having to turn people away. I mean, that must've been quite galling. <laughs> <laughs> happen how did you make the decision as to where to cut it off and how did you manage the communication around that uh it, it was 
it was a really hard call, I think, for us, and it was, it was some tricky conversations. Um, I think with Cedars, especially in the crowdfunding, we were aiming for 300, and then very quickly, suddenly, um, it, we, it poured in and up to 500. Um, and we, at the same time, were having conversations with a lot of uh, sort of larger investors, but they were going to bring quite a lot to the table. Um, and they'd be already supporting us with our networks and um, with our strategy and thinking of how we were developing as a company. Um, so it was it was it was tricky. I think. I mean, from our point of view, I didn't want to get diluted uh, much more. So I had a cap of how much we wanted to raise. Uh, we had interest for around 2.8, and I, I knew I wanted to raise around 2.1 um, as a very maximum amount. Um, so knowing that, we, we basically just took the people that invested last, um, which was a lot of the overfunded uh, people. Um, and it was, it was just sort of going, just drew it going backwards of who were the last investors and took a line out. Uh, we had one or two conversations with people, but people generally understood it and, and um, were sort of saying, I was just so excited by the brand and wanted to support you, but I'll have to support another way. So it was, it was um, hard, but it was definitely understood as well. Yeah, well, it puts you in a good position should you ever want to crowdfund again, right? Yeah. <laughs> pent-up demand. <laughs> so the whole process then, given that you made that decision to crowdfund and got the video done really quickly and got it up within a matter of weeks, how, how long was it from the beginning of that raise to actually getting the money in the bank? Um, so we, I, th I th think it was probably in total two and a half months. Um, just fairly, fairly quickly. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. Yeah. I mean, that's, I, I think if somebody raises within three months, that's a really strong and well-run campaign. So uh, congratulations. <laughs> yeah, uh, I think it was a... so, but three months of how much of your time did it suck up? <laughs> I mean, one person in the team was on it pretty <laughs> okay. much sort of 70% of the time. Um, so it is, it's definitely a commitment. We, our, our feeling was it probably wasn't going to be our first choice of, of, of raising cash. And as soon as we decided initially, and as soon as we decided to do it, actually it's been so beneficial for us. Um, it's got our brand out there. It's raised awareness. Um, we've loved, we've always sort of loved the idea of having given people the opportunity to invest um, we just knew it was going to be a huge time commitment and quite a distraction, but actually there were so many other things. I think because we had a lot to say as well, that we had new branding coming out, new products, it was a good time for us to get those messages out as well. As well. So it, it was beneficial in so many different ways. Yeah, I mean, it's, it, in many ways, if people see crowdfunding as a marketing campaign, not just about raising investment, then the value of the time you put into it is much more easy to justify, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, yeah definitely. Yeah. So, what, so I just want to ask you a couple of questions before we bring the interview to a close, actually, around, um, around women entrepreneurs, female-founded businesses. And, um, and you know, one of the things we've seen over the last few years is how successful women are at crowdfunding. Um, women have a 75% success rate on crowdfunding versus a 55% uh, success rate from the guys, which is great. Um, you know, what are your views on how we can get more women going out there and raising the investment they need to scale yeah um i think it's interesting we we actually did a, a pitch um or a panel on um on women in investing because we were quite surprised that um although our brand and the people that follow us on instagram and twitter and people that buy us predominantly are female um, we only had 20 percent of people on cedar's platform investing in us um, that were female yeah. which we were really shocked by um 
And so our panel, I suppose, was not so much just like, is it harder for female founders to raise cash? Um, but is it, also, is, it, is it also the problem that a lot of females are not investing in companies as well? Um, and, and I think there is that, that sort of both sides of the coin that um, often people like to invest in something they can relate to and understand. Um, and I think that goes back to on the uh, sort of old school business where you've got a room full of suits um, and so they're much more likely probably to relate to somebody in a suit as well um, and that sort of pivot of sort of needing both sides needing more women to be excited and wanting to invest and interested in investing in small businesses um, but also that um, females feel empowered and excited to be telling sort of businesses, uh, telling people what they're doing and being quite sort of a lot more salesy around what they're doing. I think that definitely from my, my personality and the way that I then changed the way that I was pitching, I felt like I was a lot, I think my leadership skills are a lot softer than potentially a, a male leadership skill. Um, and then, switching it to sort of be a lot more certain um it's almost like that that old joke that people say you know if a good guy sees a job spec and it, there's one thing that he can do or two things that he can do on it he's like yeah i'll apply and if a girl's reading the same one and there's one thing she can't do she's like ah, nah i can't do it i won't apply and just having that confidence to be sort of a lot more assertive and um but i, th I think i mean i don't know much about the sort of the difference in I wonder if a lot of women turn to crowdfunding because it's an easier way of them raising investment rather than standing in front of a room of, of suits, um, which it still generally seems to be on the other side of the the, the um, on the other side of the table when you're looking to VCs or more professional investors. Yeah. It certainly feels a lot less intimidating. I think. I mean, you can if you want to run your crowdfunding campaign from your desk, you know, or from your bed yeah. in your pajamas, if you, if you, want. Yeah. <laughs> um, it does feel a bit less intimidating, but also as you have pointed out, you can't be successful necessarily unless you are also bringing in all those other investors and some of them may be your tribe, but you've had to go out and have lots of conversations with institutions. Yeah. So yeah. To, to get your success, you couldn't have done that from the no. Um, and I, and I think what you say about, you know, the language, it's very interesting. It's subtle, it's subtle, isn't it? The change between that softer language you might use and then having to kind of be more certain when you're talking to investors, it's, it's quite subtle, but it's like you say things like, well, we're thinking about doing this and we might, you know, versus we will do this, you know, and this is what we believe yeah. and, and just being a lot more um, confident with your language. It makes all yeah. the difference. Yeah. I mean, if you think, I mean, would you invest in a company that doesn't seem that certain about where it's going and you start realizing that no one knows the future I mean, no one's got the crystal ball. Um, so it's just about showing that you have a plan and showing that you have this belief as well, because a lot of running a business as well is having that strong belief in what you do. Yeah. And if you have that strong belief, it, it acts like a magnet, doesn't it? To bring other people along with you, whether that's your, your team that you're recruiting, whether it's your customers, whether it's your investors, mm -hmm. you know, you're, you're the captain of the ship and bring yeah. you along. <laughs> yeah. And did you, did you find at all in, in the process, any, um, did you come across any gender bias at all or did you, did you not experience that? No, I think, I think I was really fortunate actually. Um, I had a lot of people that were just sort of excited by what we were doing and, and in a way as well, um, female founders are still the uh, minority. And so you stand out from the crowd as well. So it, it can have, um, 
and sort of you can have positives as well. Yes, work it to your favour. Keep putting on the red shirt and feeling confident. <laughs> and <laughs> I'm really pleased to hear that. You know, it, it always encourages me when I speak to a female entrepreneur that says, you know what, no, I didn't, ex- didn't experience any of that bias. So I think a lot of people go in expecting to experience it and then it can become a self-fulfilling prophecy. Yeah. It doesn't need to be. You know, we are all strong and capable of going out and raising this investment if we put our mind to it. So um, congratulations. Great. Thank so you've you. got all this money in the bank. Or oh, have you spent it already? <laughs> <laughs> what's, what are you going to do with it all? What, what's next for you? Um, I mean, a lot of it is the nature of our business. A lot of it's cash flow. Um, so we normally get paid three months after we actually produce. Um, so as we grow, the need for cash flow as well is 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 even greater. We're still not breaking even as well. So we've got um, a cash deficit most months. Mm-hmm. Um, so covering that and allowing us to get to a position in 18 to 24 months where we are breaking even. But we are growing the sales team, we're growing our marketing. It's the first time where we've got some marketing spend as well. Um, and we're, we're just excited excited that we've got mainstream condiments going into the ketchup market, going into the mayonnaise market, where we can start shouting about what we do a lot more. Um, we've rebranded. We've got a very strong look. And we're wanting to get ketchup and mayo across the country. Fantastic. So when are we, when are we, going, to, when are we going to buy your ketchup and your mayonnaise in the, in the supermarkets? Well, I mean, as of this week, you can buy it on Ocado. Um, we are yeah, in Sainsbury's as well with our mayo um, and hopefully launching the ketchup, which is very new to retail next summer. Um, our main focus for the ketchup is actually in restaurants and out of home, so getting it on as many tables and as many burger bars and pub chains as we possibly can. Fantastic. I cannot wait to try it. Based on everything else I've tried of yours, I'm sure it's going to be amazing. I'll get some over to you. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much for sharing, um, sharing your journey with us, Jenny. And uh, we wish you all the best in uh, getting your new products out. And um, thanks again. We'll speak to you soon. Thank you very much. Have a lovely day. Thanks for following Fundraising Stories with Female Founders. This content is all provided to you for free, so if you've enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe so you never miss another one. Enter the Arena has helped hundreds of female founders fly through pre-raise and investment and onto the exponential growth of their business. Our first-hand experience, expert guidance and proven programs help female founders unleash the Wonder Woman inside. To see if we can help you do the same, head over to www.entertheArena.co.uk. I'm Julia Elliott-Brown and I look forward to talking with you soon.